I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers and just plain cool people about music. Our guest today is broadcaster, podcaster and filmmaker Roger Bennett. He hosts multiple podcasts and TV shows through his Men in Blazers media network. He's also a published author releasing his memoir in 2021, Reborn in the USA, an Englishman's love letter to his chosen home. And by the way, it debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Roger, thanks for taking the time to join me. It's a joy to be with you. You are genuinely a legend, a gentleman who is a broadcaster has given me and told that was a pleasure just with the taste filter and the music you brought into my life. So it's an honor to sully your life uh, for like the next half hour or so talking about mine. That's you're lovely. Thank you so much. So I was, I was reading some excerpts from your book over the weekend. And, and as a fellow Brit who has made his living as a broadcaster in the U.S., I was fascinated by your childhood story. Uh, growing up in Liverpool as an Everton fan, uh, <laughs> sorry, and then discovering American football, which just completely changed your life. We'll talk about real football, soccer in a minute, but tell me a little bit about that time uh, as a kid growing up and, uh, you know, obviously going to Goodison Park and seeing football as it was in the in the 80s, which was nowhere near as good as it is now, played on dirty, muddy fields. I heard that you became aware of the Channel 4 weekly program sort of updating what was happening in American football. And that was your first glimpse into uh, American football. And things just changed very quickly for you. Yeah, I mean, Liverpool is the greatest city in the world. But it, in the 1980s, um, it was a dark time. Uh, economically, politically, culturally, unemployment, just an enormous unemployment rate. There was a heroin epidemic that gripped the city. Um, it was really a, a, a town that, which had been ostracized by the Thatcher government, mocked and derided. Um, and there were two ways we announced ourselves to the world. One was through music, obviously. The other was through football. Um, and life felt like it was lived in black and white for me uh, growing up. And it was through you know the, the sitcoms that I watched from America, the, the movies, the John Hughes movies, the music, you know, appearing public enemy uh, for the first time. Uh, you know, I, I used to get the Rolling Stones sent over like eight weeks later it would come. And I'd read the record reviews of bands like the Windbreakers, the Tailgaters, the Georgia Satellites, Jason and the Scorchers. I get them all sent to me uh, via import. You know, they'd come. I'd be the only person uh, in England that owned the Hooters album or Till Tuesday's album. Um, and I'd listen to them. Um, and they just sounded like life lived in a different reality, color, technicolor, where there was hope, there was optimism, there was possibility. And then I glimpsed the NFL for the first time. Just hilarity, the the pizzazz, the large in life. The, my family were meant to, the family myth was, head to Chicago uh, when my great-grandfather left the Ukraine uh, the turn of the century. He was a butcher, headed to Chicago, got off the boat when it refueled in Liverpool, a stop early, and thinking he was in New York, got off like no. an idiot. So we always dreamt about Chicago. You know, we've always talked in the fact, oh, we should have lived there, we should be there. So when you know John Hughes movies came out, and then when I saw the Chicago Bears, Super Bowl-winning Chicago Bears, just their swagger, their redefinition, their team had been terrible for a decade and they rewrote their own history. You know, the Refrigerator Perry, William Refrigerator Perry for your older listeners, Walter Payton, Jim McMahon, just such a swaggering bunch of wonder. And they seem to say to me, come here, 
move to this city. You can be whatever you want to be because we did. Um, and so that's exactly what I did. I followed the lead as quickly as I could. Um, and thank God um, it's worked out okay. Not too shabby. How, how did you actually get here? When when did you arrive? How did you arrive? And what was the idea when you got here? God, you're overestimating that I had an idea. Mate. <laughs> I, I, I'm funny enough, I did actually, the year after the Bears won the Super Bowl, 1986, I had a pen pal, someone you wrote to, young listeners, and exchanged, you know, sent to, I'd write about football, Everton, soccer. Uh, which he, the guy loved that he'd write about the Chicago Bears. And I went over to spend the summer when I was 16 in the northern Chicago suburbs where John Hughes made his movies. Essentially, he'd live out four weeks where I lived out my own John Hughes movie in which I was the, the rather hapless star. And it was magnificent. And I did actually meet the Chicago Bears at the airport at O'Hare. William Refrigerator Perry put his arm around me and said, um, be what you can be, son. Just be yourself. That's what I did. Um, and now knowing professional athletes, as I do, I realized he was just trying to get the hell away from me. That's what every single professional athlete tells a young person they want to get the hell away from. But being 16, I was like, oh, my God, really refrigerator Perry just told me to move to America. So I'm going to do that. And I did, Nick, right after university. Um, I moved here at the first opportunity. I moved to Chicago to complete my family's kind of journey three generations later i didn't know anybody i mean there was a the part of chicago a beautiful park rogers park i moved there because it had my name i didn't know anybody there i was just like oh roger my name's roger i'll move there and i did and it was hilarious and ridiculous it was not easy you know there was an illegal alien um and for a long time i just overstayed my visa and never left um and i became an american citizen ultimately i have four American kids now who all have American accents every morning when I first hear them speak, I do giggle with wonder and I don't take any of it for granted. Uh, but I do, I think becoming an American citizen is, was the greatest thing. It would be the greatest day. Ultimately, in four generations, Nick, I hope my family have a photograph of me, my NBC Sports headshot on the wall, and they'll point at it and be like, who's that? And they'll all say, we don't know, we don't remember his name, but he's the one. He's the one who moved us over to America. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so you were uh, uh, undocumented, as as they say yeah. these days. Yeah. Um. How how did you support yourself? I was a waiter. I was uh. a baker. I did the early baking shift. Probably the world's worst baker. I was a terrible waiter, Nick. I don't. I um. I just I, I admire every single waiter that I ever encountered because bloody hell, that is a that is just one of society's great and misunderstood and just it's an incredible gig. job. Oh my yeah. god. Um, so that was mostly it. I was a baker, terrible baker, um, and just hanging on, hustling uh, as a librarian. I just used to fall asleep in the stacks and read books all day. That was a, one of the great jobs. And everything just came from from hustle. But I, I will say, because it needs to be said, when I did become American, um, it was, which was a deeply profound and moving day, um, you know, I believe so deeply in America. The epigraph of my book is let America be America again, the land that uh, never has been yet and, um, and yet must be. Um, you know, an epigraph's a funny thing because it's like using someone else's words that are much better than any that you were about to write uh, in the rest of the book. Uh, those are obviously Langston Hughes's. The other part of the epigraph is Jason Isbell. It's music related. I used to want to be a real man. I don't know what that even means. 
Um, but when I did become American, it was an incredible day. I am fully aware that the America of my dreams is a romantic America um, that doesn't exist in any way, shape or form. And I wrote the book in a fever dream during COVID uh, when the world had shut down and the Black Lives Matter uh, trauma just seared America. Uh, and it felt like there was no greater gap between my America um, of my dreams and and the reality. But I also know coming from England that any nation, there's a gap between the, the ideal and the reality. And to become an American means to dedicate yourself to closing the gap between the two. But it was it was a striking thing when I did become American and I posted it on social media and it was beautifully received. But it was in the, the dread days of, of, of just political division. And a lot of people you know, tweeted immediately, just like, oh, you did it the proper way. You know, you're, this is what the nation needs. And the honest truth is it's important to acknowledge I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't a legal alien. And, uh, you know, America's been bloody good to me, as I believe it should be. Um, I mean, it's it's part of the part of the founding myth that I I've lived uh, to pay testament to. But that was even in the joy of that day, those comments that you you know you've done it the proper way and telling people I haven't, I did it exactly the way thousands of people dream of doing. A thousand, you know, hundred and twenty seven people in the room with me. Had many most of them had crawled across deserts, escaped civil war, uh, dire conflict to be in that room. I just escaped a couple of beatings late night in a Liverpool pub, Nick. Uh, which is which is hardly uh, hardly anything to escape, but that idea of America and becoming an American are the greatest. Uh, really, there will be nothing I do that transcends that. It's a really important perspective to have. Um, I became an American as well, probably around uh, nineteen or twenty years ago now, after being here for for some while, and um, you know, overstaying a visa and marrying my partner, which is what changed everything. You know. Um, and then after a while and having children, I also have kids with American accents, which is still weird. But, uh, yeah, I, I was in a, some massive auditorium in LA with thousands of people uh, and not that many of them looked like me, you know, which really helped me to understand the privileged position that I, that I was actually in to be able to become an American. It was a little bit easier, I think, as a, as a white guy, I got to be honest with you. I always say this to anybody um, listening. One of the greatest ways to marvel at the United States is to go and witness a, a citizenship ceremony. It's one of the most beautiful. I try and go every single year. I actually went last year and spoke to a, a group of newly minted American citizens in, um, in, in, in front of the actual American Constitution uh, on Constitution Day. It was, it was so deeply, um, so, so deeply profound. But anyone can go. Anyone, these these, these uh, um, citizenship, this is not what you wanted to talk about on your podcast, but these citizenship um, swearings in are beautiful. They will make you just reconnect to the profound beauty uh, of this nation and what it means to be an American. I just urge anyone still listening to the end of me uh, waffling on about citizenship and the constitution here, um, just go and watch one of these things. It is, it is just, it's, it's poetry. So you uh, jumping back a little bit. So you were a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, all, the, yeah. all those things. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was your, uh, what, what did you do at that university? What was your degree in? Oh, it's terrible. Uh, I did law in England um, at Leeds. And I think so many of the people I love in life are escape lawyers. Um, it's a, I think it's a, my brain doesn't work like that. It's just my, I don't have the, the brain for it. 
Um, but I do think retrospectively, it gave me real structures, uh, mental structures, which have shaped my life. Um, and I do, I emotionally connect to, and there's so many, this probably should be a union of escaped, um, of escape lawyers, but I did a law degree. It told me what I didn't want to do. And that was it. I had no plan, Nick. I had no idea. I had no notion. Um, I had no money. Um, you know, when I look back on, um, where I lived and how I lived, it was, it was hilarious. And everyone's like, how can I follow in your pathway in life? And I'm always like, don't just do not do what I did. It's reckless. So how did you become a, a broadcaster? Oof, well, Nick, God, how did I ruin football? How, how did I become the last thing stopping football from going over the top in this nation? Um, <laughs> it, it really began 2006 World Cup, Nick. Uh, I was a writer. I was writing books, uh, a lot about culture. Um, obviously, football um, was what I loved. Football was my identity. Football is how I express myself. There's there's much smarter people than me talking about tactics. So I, I I don't know if you picked it up yet, dear listeners, but I, I played zero times for my nation. So I can't tell you what happened in the locker room when we came back against Germany and the speech that we made with bands of brothers. But, you know, I do watch football a little bit like Slumdog Millionaire. Watching football just synapses me into all kinds of thoughts and ideas. Camus, before he became quite a good writer, was meant to be an incredible goalkeeper. Um, and he's reputed to have said, it's not, never been proven, but I like to believe it was true. Everything I learned about humanity and the values and motivations of, of human beings, I learned through watching football. And I believe it. I mean, essentially, we're watching... Um, Human beings live out decision-making under a crucible of pressure. Um, we're watching glory. We're watching training, elite training, uh, muscle memory. We're watching failure. We're watching agony. Uh, we're watching transcendent poetry. We're watching you know, Pythagoras levels of like Van Gogh levels of understanding time and space play out in real time with millions watching. And that's how I experience it. And it, it, it's so deep. It's how I understand history, politics, culture. They always say when two teams take the field, their nation's histories walk out alongside them. And I believe that deeply. So that's how I'm watching the game. And then it started to pick up. You know, I came here in 1994 when the World Cup was here. And it was meant to um, turn America into a football-loving nation overnight, like the hula hoop or the, the yo-yo or the pogo stick. And instead, the climb was slow and steady. And I did see it. And the internet connected millions of Americans who were, you know, far away from football. You were far away from your team, uh, Aston Villa. You know, I, I, when Everton, my team, played in America in 1995, it was not on television. I had 472 cable channels at the bar I used to go to. They couldn't pull the game in. I had to call, uh, call my father and have him hold the phone against the radio. But that changed. The internet changed. Cable television changed. A lot of football broadcast here. Um, and ultimately, 2006, Nick, England were playing in the World Cup and a commentator on ESPN said, um, and the world's most famous footballer, um, Charlie Beckham takes the field. And I screamed at my wife. I was like, God, if only they had someone who bled the, it's David Beckham, David Beckham. If only they had someone that knew like the rudimentaries, this sport would go next level. Um, and she's like, why don't you start writing and talking about it? I said, all right, I will. And so the next World Cup, you know, um, podcast technology had just started and we started a podcast um, and everything. The, the football timing was incredible. The, the, the digital, uh, you know, being able to make cheap digital conversation and really emotionally connect to an audience, double great timing. 
and everything that's followed uh, has kind of been in the wake. So whoever that broadcaster was that called him Charlie Beckham, I'm so bloody grateful retrospectively. You know, the first World Cup I, I was here for was in uh, 1990 and it was on TNT and they would break for commercials every 10 or 15 minutes. In game, they, in game, right? In game. Yeah, they would just, they would just go away for two or three minutes and then come back like, like nothing, nothing had happened. Yeah. Uh, we, we've come a long way. And obviously your timing is, is, is a part of this, the timing uh, with NBC getting involved with the Premier League just really took the game to such a massive level here in the States. And and I know that through the years with your, your podcast and the TV show that obviously you do over at NBC as well, you've had some amazing guests on on that show. And I promise we're going to get to talk about music in a minute, but sure. I, I am fascinated by people that you've spoken to about football over the years, because they're not just <laughs> football people. You, you're kind of a little bit like me. You're talking to anybody who's, who's cool, really, whether it's a, a, another broadcaster or an athlete, uh, but it doesn't have to be a football athlete. It can be an athlete from, from a different sport. You've had comedians on. I know John Oliver's a, a pal of yours, and he's, he's been on a few times. At the beginning, uh, as you were looking to sort of try and, try and get people to come on and, and, and speak to you, was it a little difficult at the beginning? No, it's the opposite. Look, it, it, that's one of the things that's driven this. We are, in many ways, so bloody well positioned because, first of all, the biggest teams in the world want to speak to America. So we do get access to the best players, the best managers, um, partially because they love bald uh, blokes like me and partially because they want to speak to America. So we've got that incoming. But from the very beginning, Nick, I think our first ever podcast, um, our first guest was uh, Liam Neeson. It was just like from the very beginning, this was a podcast with zero listeners. Um, but people were so desperate to talk about football, like you no doubt were. We were starved. Anyone that cared about football was starved of talking about it. Um, I was a terrible interviewer. I think I asked one of my first questions was, Liam, um, the, the script for the A-team. What was it about it that spoke to you? And I think I'm pretty well. I'm, I think he said to me, "The money, the money." He shouted <laughs> down. The, uh, I was like, "Oh, make mental note not to ask cliche questions." Um, but we have been very lucky because as the sports profile has risen, you know, Americans have fallen madly, passionately in love with it. You know, the, the Premier League right now is majority uh, American owned, but there's so many fascinating human beings that have fallen in love with it. You know, JJ Watt from Wisconsin, you know, grew up playing gridiron football and I think hockey, uh, but is now fallen in love with the sport with his wife, who's a, an elite uh, footballer in her own own right, um, that he's he's brought into a Premier League team ownership, Burnley. Um, so I kind of feel like when you've got J.J. Watt and he's in, you've kind of got America. Um, and that's pretty well what it is, is that the individuals, you know, whether they're in the NBA, we have regulars, uh, who love coming on from there, Larry Nance, Alex Caruso, Josh Hart, um, from the NFL. So many uh, footballers love speaking about it. You know, Andrew Luck, uh, DeAndre Hopkins, Aaron Rodgers. And then in the entertainment industry, we've been very lucky that, you know, they're just a swath of human beings. And so that's, you know, Matthew McConaughey, Will Ferrell, uh, John Oliver, and ultimately, they want to talk about the sport and their love of it like anybody in a bar. And we've been able to really uh, harvest and, 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 and harness that. And it's been 
uh, it's been the joy of my life to be able to frame these conversations because I do believe, I mean, ultimately music has played that role in my life, a centering role, um, a connective role, uh, an expression of emotion role. Uh, but ultimately in this chaotic world of ours, and it is a chaotic world, just that sense of emotion that you feel watching football, that sense of connection, that sense of global connection. When Lionel Messi scores a goal in the World Cup final, you're both aware that you're watching something humanly transcendent, but you're also aware in that moment, like at a great concert, Nick, that you are connecting in, in the World Cup's case to millions of human beings all over the world in that cosmic second. Uh, and all of the chaos falls apart, even fleetingly. And ultimately, that's why those conversations to me are, I mean, it's very humbling. They're incredible honors. Uh, but to be able to connect um, our audience and the guests to passion, to articulation about emotion and a sense of deep, profound connectivity is, is ultimately something. Football, like music, Nick, is best when it transcends football. And to be able to do that on the, uh, on the regs or attempt to do that on the regs is, is the joy of a lifetime. You talked about Beckham a little bit earlier on. Um, and when he came to America, that was really what began the shift for, for Americans and MLS, obviously. And, and now, what, 10, 15 years later, we have Messi it's amazing. coming to, to America and just everything has just changed. By the way, with David Beckham bringing him to America, that is biblical level crap, Nick. I mean, that is a guy coming over um, and saving MLS when he came over. Teams were starting to fold. Beckham came over and stabilized and grew the league. And then, yeah, 15, 16 years on, David Beckham, the team owner, is the gentleman that brought Lionel Messi over to America to make it fulfill everything we've always dreamt of. That's biblical level crap. That's David Beckham, Abraham, uh, begatting Isaac. And we'll see what Lionel Messi does, who Jacob is that um, he brings over. But on my show, we always joke, Saka. America's sport of the future as it has been since 1972 and that future with the World Cup coming in 2026, the Men's World Cup, hopefully the Women's World Cup coming in 2027 um, and with Lionel Messi just doing his thing and his thing is woof, it is high wattage human wonder um, in Miami in the now. Um, it's the, the, the future is most certainly not like any more a, a thing we need to project it's a thing we're experiencing together and it's magnificent it's kind of everything that attracted you to american sport in the beginning really the the whole showbiz aspect of it it's it's bright it's shiny <laughs> people are excited and and now it's happening in in soccer it is a whole different world and as somebody who's been here for a while myself obviously i've be, you know i've been able to see the evolution of of the game here and it truly is a wonder um, very briefly, World Cup, the Women's World Cup just finished. I know you covered it a lot. In fact, when I first approached you about doing this, you were like, we've <laughs> got to finish up the work on the, on the Women's World Cup because you were very involved in it. Um, unfortunately, the, uh, the Spanish team's amazing result has been somewhat lost as a result of the, uh, the Rubiales scandal, but it, it was the most successful competition ever. How do you see women's soccer evolving as a world sport in the next decade? The, the Rubiolas thing, if you don't know, it's this dreadful Spanish human being who runs their football federation, who in the moment of just the Spanish team just play kinetic. It's like watching the Lakers 
at their peak, the Lake Show for the first time. Just delirious, dizzying football and no one else could match. They won. And this arsehole who runs the Federation decided to kiss one of the players full on the mouth. I mean, i.e. sexual assault with the world watching. Uh, so their win is now inextricably connected to uh, to a really crappy man. Um, but the, the the women's sport is soaring. Uh, women's World Cup was massive numbers commercially. The quality of the football, the deep, profound storylines, not just the Western Europe where, you know, England, Spain are remarkable. You close the gap on the United States, which we've had through Title IX uh, for a couple of decades. Uh, but there's teams like Haiti. Uh, there's teams like Portugal, South Africa, Colombia uh, that had moments of just soaring wonder. Um, and you it's, you can glimpse, you project forward the explosive growth of the women's game in the past 10 years, and you project that forward, and it is utterly soaring. Um, but like so much in sports, things that make our spirits soar um, attract awful human beings. There's power and money to be made. Um, and under the rock uh, of the sport where the football bureaucrats live, uh, just like the Olympic Committee, the people that run football are so often craven, and corrupt of the most base kind. Um, so for every great story, Nick, and the, the game itself is soaring. Um, there's just awful stories of disrespect, of harm to women, uh, the opposite of equality um, in nations like Zambia, but also the nations that are soaring, England. Uh, the, the, there's economic uh, complications. Spain, just deep, deep. I, I mean, just a civil war, uh, quite rightly waged by the players against their own management and federation. Even in America, there's uh, there's been reports, uh, the Yates report of of deep trauma uh, and and just sexual abuse being covered over on the regs. So the sport has so much to do, and the women that play it need to be made to feel safe, respected. Uh, and equal, honestly, ultimately, women need to be able to control the growth of their own game and, and be truly set free. And it's ultimately about men just being allies, sitting back and just being allies and, and letting women take control of their, their own future. Please, uh, God. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's jump into some music. We started off by talking about your, your childhood and, and, and growing up in Liverpool. And you said that you used to get Rolling Stone magazine a couple of months late. Um, <laughs> what is actually your first musical memory? So the, the first musical memory comes from the BBC radio Saturday lunchtime. Um, it may have been, uh, before your time, Nick, I don't know, but there used to be a show on BBC radio called junior choice with a DJ called, uh, Ed Stupot Stewart. Oh, I remember. Uh, um, yeah. God, what a talent he was. And it was, I'm pretty sure it was fictional. The, the fiction was kids were meant to write in and choose the music but somehow they seem to play the same 12 songs irrespective every week all of which sounded like they were from earlier safer more innocent decades so i'm not sure if the letters um they never surely never read any of mine and i sent a lot um but the songs they played because they were so repetitive burnt um really uh, themselves in a groove in my brain they were like itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini um was that Brian Highland? There, there was that the, the weirdest one I loved but didn't understand was "Hello Mother, Hello Father" by Alan Sherman, the old the old oh, comedian. I remember that. I mean, we didn't even have summer camp in England, so how that song kept playing, I do not know. There could not have been as many Pete English people requesting that as they pretended. But the one that really stood out was "The Most Beautiful Girl" by Charlie Rich. 
um, who I now know as like a genre um, uh, fusing country singer. Uh, but that song, the, the chorus was, if you happen to see the most beautiful girl in the world, and if you did, was she crying? It was, just, it was, a, it was actually what the, one of the first cultural creations that sounded upbeat and jaunty. But if you actually listen to them, like life itself, they were actually packed with true pathos and trauma. And it taught me ultimately that people who seem happy on the surface can often be experiencing human agony. So I want to thank you, Charlie Rich. Um, and thank you, Ed Stewpot Stewart, for for the life lesson. But it would be that one. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how old you think I am. You said you thought that might be before my time, but I was. <laughs> I, I'm a little older than you, so yeah, I, I do remember that. I mean, I remember hearing the Goons on the radio. That's how old I am. Oh. Um, what was the first music you bought with your own money? Um, it was Sounds of Silence, uh, the album um, by Simon and Garfunkel. And I wrote about this in in in, in my memoir, Reborn in the USA. Um, but it was a song, I Am a Rock, I Am an Island. Um, just that bazooki crescendoing uh bundle of emotion. Um, and it, there was a line in it that as a kid I really related to. I, mean, I think I was I was thinking I was seven when I bought the album. When when they shout so loudly and innocently, I have my books and my poetry to protect me. And I remember listening to that. Um, I'm going to say Richard Corey on the album "Freak Me the F Out," but that 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 line, uh, my books and my poetry. I remember hearing that and being like, "Yes, that that that's me." Um, and then in my early twenties, I had a relationship with a remarkable woman that fell apart um, after a brutal all-out argument where she told me um, and actually insisted that the whole song was ironic. Um, and I think I've since found out that she was right. Um, and I, I genuinely, I couldn't handle the truth, Nick. <laughs> what was the first concert you went to without uh, adult supervision? It was the Liverpool Empire. Um, it was orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Um, God, what a band. Uh, it's their junk culture tour. Um, so they were already like a defined and uh, already a big band. That, you know, Electricity and all the gay had already um, announced them to the world. Um, and Liverpool was obviously the Beatles. But when I was coming of age, there were just so many bands that made the city proud. Echo and the Bunnymen, Flock of Seagulls, who kind of got a chintzy reputation um as a legacy but bloody hell we took them so seriously when they broke through and they were just so ferociously great china crisis an incredible band bands that have fallen aside and shouldn't have done the lotus eaters and we were so proud of these bands because they really our city was so crapped upon but like they were symbols that you couldn't keep us down you like the, the fact that the whole nation danced to the sounds that came really out of our pain <laughs> and our agony that we fused into creativity. Um, and there was a song on that album called Tesla Girls. And in the middle of the concert, they played it right in the middle. And on the, in the stage, two trumpet players just appeared out of nowhere, high up on two enormous high rises at the back and just started rocking out. Um, I do remember utterly losing my mind. And it, it genuinely taught me what showmanship in that moment, I finally understood what proper showmanship was all about. Everything I've been doing in a way, Nick, in my life has been trying to emulate that moment. 
with orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Two trumpet <laughs> players, that's all it's all. I was going to say, you know, it, it explains a lot. It really does. You, you've been into showmanship for, uh, for, for a long time. We're all just like, what's that? A trumpet? Oh, my God. <laughs> so shiny. Talking of dancing, what do you listen to when you want to dance? Pre-COVID and po- po- during COVID, I mean, I actually talked about it a lot at the time with our audience, the importance of, uh, of dancing, uh, just dancing around the room when we were all in like the peak of lockdown in Manhattan and it was really dark. Just, you know, all of that fear in those early days, all of that loneliness and just that, just how healthy it was just to put on some music and just dance madly with abandon. And then I, f- I found myself listening to stuff I listened to as a kid in key moments, New Order, um, Age of Consent um, is always amazing. Uh, Public Enemy, uh, you're going to get yours. God, that like, watch me burn rubber, fall in my flame. But traditionally, I think if you, if like people said you can dance one more time, what would that be to? It would probably be something with my wife, Vanessa, and it would be, it would be Van Morrison. It would be, I want to comfort you um, because I love everything. I love everything about that song other than the fact that it turns out van morrison's meant to be a bit of an arsehole but other than that just the ethos <laughs> i know the the value of that song and the lyrics of that song are really are really beautiful how sad when you find these things out yeah i mean you know the, the, there's an album of his that i i lived in australia for about five years before i came to the states which al- which album the album poetic champions compose amazing sort of got me through the last year there and then later on, I found out that he's not a good guy. He's not a nice guy. And I was just, oh, damn. But there you go. Yeah. It's a beautiful song by an arsehole. Talk, talking of more down tempo, what do, you, what do you listen to when you're feeling sad? Listeners cannot see what's above my head in this moment, but Nick Harcourt can. And I have it above my head at all times, uh, which is Tracy Chapman's debut album. And honestly, I would answer that first car. Uh, I mean, I've talked a lot about it. Um, I've talked a lot about it on my show for, for a decade. Um, and it's now obviously become, um, a massive motif in life, but I adore that song, uh, in my book, I write about why, uh, really in the, in the, in the payoff of the book. And, um, as an Everton fan, Everton listeners are a very bad football team. Um, and I listen to fast call whenever they lose, which is often, um, <laughs> because it's a reminder to me. No matter however bad you feel in that moment, Tracy and everything she's singing about has it worse. Um, And that is like genuinely that album is so deeply, richly. um, If I can only listen to one song, one album for the rest of my life, there's no doubt that would be. And she's actually the one guest. There's three guests we've never had on the show that I've always wanted. And two of them are dead. Primo Levy and Philip Larkin. And Tracy Chapman is really the last guest that we've not been able to, uh, to get. I live, I do, I live in hope. Um, but because I can't say fast car anymore, because it has become just like such a zeitgeist, almost, almost just every, uh, uh, it's now visible, uh, audible With the country all across remake, the world yeah. at all times. Yeah. There's a song uh, that I play a lot and I play it for my kids and I play it when I'm really in a bit of a funk. It's, it's a, a leads band, Yard Act. Oh, I like them. Yeah, a song 100% endurance is an incredible video with David Chulis if you if you want to google it uh, it's a song so beautiful that Elton John uh, is reputed to have asked to record a version with them and uh, at the end of the song 
they sing, death is coming for us all, but not today. Today you're living it. You're really feeling it. Give it everything you've got, knowing you can't take it with you. And all you ever needed to exist has always been with you. Give me some of that good stuff, that human spirit, and cut it with 100% endurance. And I just love, and then the music kicks in and just soars away. And it's impossible uh, to leave that song without just wanting to make every moment matter. I do like that song. We played it on the radio and you're right that apparently the, the call from Elton went to the band and said, hey, can I play piano on your song? And they're like, what? Are you kidding? Of course you can. It's bloody Elton John. Yeah. I think you might have covered my next question as well, which is if you could only hear one song for the rest of your life, what would it be? It would be Tracy Chapman. Yeah. Um, but essentially any song that builds in emotion to a crescendo like that song does and then and then the band lose themselves like Radiohead let down or or Credence Clearwater Revival had it through the grapevine or nine out of ten Sinead O'Connor songs um I probably pick because it's longer than Fast Car and if I could listen to one song for the rest of my life I'd want it to be bloody long I'd probably pick uh, Little Wing by Stevie Ray Vaughan because I do if you listen to that song I do believe every single Every single human emotion is, is contained somewhere in it. Do you have a favorite music video? And if so, why? What is it and why? God, that's a hard one, Nick. What's your favorite music video? I got to be honest with you, mate. I love the Duran Duran videos like Rio and all that nonsense. Yes, yes. That, that's so <laughs> bloody hard. Because videos when I was a kid, they always were. They were like Duran Duran on the back of an elephant in Sri Lanka um, or on the ed- end of a boat just like, Plowing through the high seas with beautiful um, women everywhere. Yeah, and I did. I'll be candid. Like the video that comes to mind thinking through that was actually once in a lifetime. Uh, the Talking Heads video that came almost at the same time. But like Duran Duran, I mean, just they were they weren't real. Like you, you couldn't be them. Like they were on elephants in Sri Lanka. We were not on elephants, Nick, in Sri Lanka. That was not our life. And I think watching Once in a Lifetime, there was a moment on Top of the Pops, which is this English show that was how we used to partake of our music. It used to be like the billboard rundown, but bands that were on it, just like, oh, it was just, it broke a band. It's how it was a wham, big deal. It's how, yeah. yeah, it's how George Michael broke. You know, they needed someone to fill in a space. They got Wham, who I was already way into, by the way. Wham, uh, wham Rap was amazing. Um, and it changed his life. Once in a lifetime were very much like Wham. They weren't big. They had them on because one of the DJs liked them. And I remember the DJ introduced them by saying, just listen to this once in a lifetime. It'll change your life. And then the video kicked in. And I think seeing David Byrne, who was like the opposite of Duran Duran on the edge of a boat, surrounded by beauty, he was, a, he was just, he looked normal. He looked normal. He looked like me. He looked like normal as in like clearly a different human being to everybody else. But he was confidently in that video when you watch him dance, just walking his own path, busting the moves he wanted to bust and savoring every second. And I think watching that video, that was just like, yeah, that. No more, no more elephants. The elephants were no elephants in Sri Lanka were off the off the lifetime ambition. It was like, oh that, I want to be like that guy. Do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned part of it already. It's his Australian music, Nick. And again during COVID, um, I started to, I don't know the day I started to listen to it, but I started to listen obsessively to Australian music. And there's a, there's a, a nighttime show over there on Triple J Radio. 
called Home and Hosed. And every morning for the past three years, uh, I wake up and I, it's an hour-long show and I listen to that show. Um, and what it does, it breaks new Australian acts. It only plays bands that are from Australia, young bands, bands that are just breaking through. And I, I, I think I realized pretty quickly that it was during that COVID summer, it was during that Black Lives Matter torment, uh, the darkness of that time. I, I do wonder whether Australia started to play the same role for me that America had when I was a kid, just like a world I'd never been to, an imaginary world where I could project that everything everything was still lived out gloriously. And so I have one playlist, one spot. It drives my kids crazy. I've got one playlist with like hour, like hundreds of hours of music on, hundreds of hours. I just dump them all in. I always listen to it on shuffle. Um and so they're full of bands like Sweater Curse or Platonic Sex or Jack Davis and the Bush Chooks. And when I, when I recommend them in my newsletter, I'll, I'll often get like an email from an Australian music PR person. Be like, how did you hear about my band, mate? Because um, their band have got like 12 followers on Instagram. I'll be like, right. um, I'll always say the same thing. I just heard them on Triple J. And some have become big. And I've got to develop a relationship with some of them, like Alex, the astronaut, whom I really adore. I love um, Alex, the astronaut. I, she, I, I mean, they're amazing. And going to see Angie McMahon on my birthday this year, um, someone who gave me, someone who gave me like untold courage in lockdown. She's finally playing live herself again. So to go and see her in September, after all I've experienced uh, listening to her music is, I mean, it's very profound and very beautiful. Yeah, the power of live music is perhaps even more so after a couple of years of not being able to go to live shows. The power of live music is just always something special, something that lives and breathes on its own. So it's trumpets or castle maneuvers in the dark, Nick. Trumpets. Callback. I like it. <laughs> is there a band or artist that you love but feel they never quite got the big break that they deserved? Yeah, a lot. Because I, I used to listen a lot to Swedish music. I had a long kick in that. Um, and I was, uh, I think Jens Leitman was the act that like inspired me to go down the wormhole. I think Maple Leaves is one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. Um, and then I went down the wormhole and there's a band, Billy, the Vision and the Dancers, who had a song called Man from Argentina. And I followed them on Twitter and then they immediately DM me and asked if I could help them become big in America. Um, and it's, I don't have many regrets in life, Nick. Um, but I do regret. Um, that I didn't, I didn't do anything. We're almost at the end, but we've got to talk a little bit about Aston Villa and Everton before we wrap I up. I love it. I love you. I love you. Do you have a musical guilty pleasure? Um, whew, that would be, um, that'd be John Mellencamp. Is that how you define guilty pleasure? I think it would be for me. Like I've gone through lots of life journeys with him. He's had many iterations. Yeah. When I first listened to him, Pink Houses, I was a kid. And that aspiring to America place, I didn't fully understand. I couldn't quite locate him. And he'd sing, you know, I, I, I wrote this in my book, and he'd sing, and they vacation down in the Gulf of Mexico. And I'd be like, oh, my God, I'd love to. I'd love to vacation down in the Gulf of Mexico. The point of the song was a bit lost on me. Um, but when I, I moved to America, like, it used to annoy me. that I loved small towns so much. Um, and he'd left his small town. He lived in New York like I did. And it really, like, I felt betrayed a bit. It's hard to listen to that song and then realize that the guy's living in Soho uh, after all that. But the Scarecrow album, Minutes to Memories, that song, um, which is just so beautiful. It's like a movie. 
um, of human truth. And so I, I, that song, which I never get, there's some songs they never get tired of listening to. I, I do actually burn out. There's some songs I play so much that I actually break their goodness in my own mind. Like I genuinely, no matter, once they're broken, doesn't matter if I don't listen to them for years, they're still broken when I put them back on. But like Tracy Chapman, Minutes to Memories, I can listen to that uh, endless amounts without ever, without it ever losing its power for me. That's it for the music questions. There's one more question that we always finish on, but before we get to that, I can't let this conversation go without talking a little bit about our respective teams, obviously. Sure. Um, growing up in Liverpool, you picked Everton. <laughs> uh, growing up in, in Birmingham, I, I picked Aston Villa. And both of these teams have had some glory times, but not for a long time for, for either of them. Uh, fortunately for Villa, that seems to be changing. Unfortunately for your team, it's not. Um, and it doesn't look like it's going to any anytime soon. For those who don't know what Nick's talking about, about football, Nick is like essentially a doctor here, breaking the news to a patient that it's not going to end well, is what you're very diplomatically trying to tell me, Nick Harcourt. It's, it has to change at some point. Uh, but but right now, you know, you're shaking your head. No, it's never, ever going to change. It's very bad, Nick. The thing about growing up in a town and supporting your local team is tribal. It's visceral. You pick your team and that's it. You know, there's none of this like, oh, I think I'll, you know, follow the Dallas Cowboys or, or whatever it is. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, as um, the Premier League has tape, taken a, a grip on American kids playing soccer, they go, oh, I think I'll, you know, I'll support Manchester City or Man, Man United or Chelsea or whatever it is. It's like you pick your hometown team and you're kind of stuck with them, aren't you? <laughs> whatever happens. It's who you are. It's your identity. And my identity inherited from my from my father and him from his dad was to support this team, which is which is like uh, being tested the Durbervilles. It's um, it's just happiness is a fleeting emotion um, in an otherwise barren, sad life. Um, and possibly I'm not quite sure what you're asking me here, but I do think about this a lot at the moment because the team are financially in dire, dire straits, never mind in the football realm. So it is very bad economically. They may implode. But for your listeners who don't care about football, I will say I have four children. They are all diehard Everton fans. It's possibly the worst thing I've ever done to my own kin. And I asked myself, why have I done this? What have I done? They had free choice. They didn't have to be pulled into this. They could have done anything. They could have been happy. They don't have to be like me. They don't have to be doomed and dark. Um, and what I've realized Nick, is ultimately what I've done is great parenting because being an Everton fan is teaching your kids how to approach life, which is life is short. Time is, uh, is not to be taken for granted. Life is full of challenges. Like life is a grind. There's a lot of misery in life. But in those fleeting moments when there is happiness, when we score a goal, Nick, a big boy goal, when we occasionally win, uh, when we dream, when we sing, when we soar, savor those moments, savor those moments and dance uh, as if you're at your own kid's wedding. And that is the gift that I've given my kids, which is how to appreciate uh, both the truth of the horrors of life and the appreciation of, of moments of wonder. It's bloody great parenting, isn't it, Nick? I think you've done a great <laughs> job. You know, when uh, my, my son, who's Sam, who's 20 now, he unfortunately in inherited Aston Villa from me as well. And uh, when we went down about five years ago, six years ago, whatever it was, we went down, we got relegated. Uh, I, I said to him at the time, I was saying, listen, listen, I mean, 
I know all your mates are into Premier League and everything, but you know, if you need to pick another team for now, it's okay. It's it's all right. And he was like, "Are you kidding? Good boy, good boy, Sam. What a lad. What a lad." I I, I will say what the one thing that's changed as I've gotten older is a lot of my fandom used to be based on, and my joy used to be based on Schadenfreude, uh, taking joy in other people's misery. Um, and as I get older. Um, and one of the joys of being a football fan from America, where it's not parochial, where it's not territorial, where it's not tribal. Uh, so like, it's not because I win that I'm great and that you lose and I can laugh at you. I think I've, uh, the Freude, I've ironed it out. I actually feel joy for other people's joy. Um, and again, for your listeners who don't know anything about football, Aston Villa are a team that have similarly suffered. They are currently soaring. Um, and honestly, that's the thing that's changed me. I am bloody happy for you. I'm happy for you. I'm happy for your son. I'm happy for Aston Villa families across the world, the connections they're making cross-generation, the memories they're making, the joy and uh, that they're feeling. Man, I'm genuinely so bloody happy for you. You deserve it. Yeah, well, we still don't trust it, obviously, but after <laughs> all these years, but... Listen, the things will shift eventually because they do. I want to thank you so, so much for hanging out with me and sharing a, a little bit of your story and sharing some fun and sharing your music as well. And my last question that I always ask of every guest is, how are you feeling right now? I am tired, Nick Harcourt, because football don't sleep. Um, but it's a joyful tired that's just lifted by the ongoing conversation that we have with thousands of fans who are in love or discovering the sport um, across the United States. But it's bloody good to speak to you. You are a legend. You, as I said at the top, have given me to your own musical taste so much joy when I came to the United States and I found your shows and to be able to speak to you today is is really beautiful Nick thank you mate that was a pleasure thank you so much the sound of success is hosted and produced by myself Nick Harcourt for Spark Network our theme music is by Keita Klein for more episodes find us on Spotify Apple SparkNetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening 